You're listening to Highly Unlikely. I'm Jonathan Flannis. Today I speak with Norman Cassiano. In 2016, Norman survived the Pulse nightclub shooting, which at the time was the worst mass shooting in American history. In the interview, Norman shares with us what he had to do to survive and where to go from here. I'm Jonathan Flannis. You're listening to Highly Unlikely. And it is with great sadness that I share we have not 20, but 50 casualties. gunshot started getting closer and closer and closer to the bathroom stalls, which means he was getting closer to us. Oh my God, they're all shooting back and forth. See people screaming and falling and there was blood everywhere. As they see the full horror inside, officers yelling to the wounded to get out if they can't. You can walk. Some people escaping out this side door and into this small alleyway. Shots fired north bathroom, shots fired north bathroom. We're being pulled possibly up to uh, 15 remaining in the club that are barricaded in. But that people were climbing over one another to get out. It's, it's a state of panic, like we just wanted to get out. Dozens who did not make it out, becoming hostages, stuck inside. Some huddled inside a bathroom, just off the dance floor. Maybe 20, 30 feet away from me. And I saw the fire coming out of his gun every time he shot fire. The smell of blood and, and just dead bodies everywhere. Outside the building? I even heard the clip fall on the floor. <laughs> And for him to just reload again, and then the rings of shots just keep going. It was 2.06 when I got the first text saying, I love you, mom. Tell them to hurry up. I'm going to die. Angel Cologne had been shot six times. When they crossed paths with the killer. I guess he must have thought I died with my eyes open, and I just kind of kept staring at him. And, I, and from then, I thought in my mind that he was going to shoot me in my face. And after that, I guess that's when I must got shot in the head. Texting loved ones, call police, I'm going to die. Although it's still early in the investigation, we know enough to say that this was an act of terror and an act of hate. Yeah. <laughs> 
that night seemed like it was beyond fun. I mean, we had fun. Everyone was just drinking. And we were so excited. Google Map popular clubs in Orlando and Pulse was the first one to come up. It was so much fun there. I mean, the experience of Pulse was just one you couldn't compare to any other club here in Orlando. We're saying our goodbyes. Um, I'm hugging everyone. It was a great night. Right around when they stopped serving alcohol, that's when uh, we heard the first round of shots go off. At first, we didn't know that there were gunshots. I, I didn't know. I was so confused. I was like, wow. Out of nowhere, I, we just hear a big shotgun. We just, we stop what we're doing, and then it just keeps going. The, you know, the gunpowder, it smelled like firecrackers on the 4th of July. More people are falling, people are running, glasses are getting dropped, and then, you know, people are passing me, like, I'm getting covered in blood from other people. After the second shot, there was a pause, and then it just started shooting, 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 shooting. The last thing my friend texted me was, please help me. Help me, I've been shot and I'm going into shock. Please help me. Orlando is a mid-sized city right in the heart of Florida. A city of two million people, it's known mostly as the location for the Walt Disney Resort and the birthplace of the Backstreet Boys and NSYNC. Along with Mickey Mouse and Lou Pearlman is a huge LGBTQ population. On any Orlando night, the streets are packed and gay bars are aplenty. This includes places like the Stonewall Bar, Southern Nights, the Parliament House, and until 2016, a nightclub called Pulse. For in June of 2016, it became the site of the worst mass shooting in American history when a man entered the nightclub with a semi-automatic rifle and a 9mm Glock and rained down hell on the 300 people inside. I actually, I was born in Puerto Rico. And uh, I grew up there until I was about six. And then my parents, they wanted better education, a better life. So they moved me and my little brother over to the United States. This is Norman Cassiano. I first came across Norman after I saw an interview he gave to a local news channel about his terrifying experience at Pulse. People were trying to jump over me, like pushing my head down, like it's, it's a state of panic, like we just wanted to get out. So Norman was born in Puerto Rico, but moved to the States as a kid. Back in the 90s and the early 2000s, there wasn't a lot of like, oh, okay, understanding when it came to being gay and being part of the LGBT community. Growing up, I, you know, I was bullied and stuff like that for being gay and I didn't even understand it at that time in my life. You know, I didn't really understand what gay men and all this. And, you know, I'd get bullied over my voice and things like that. So I, I kind of tried to stay to myself. 
But bullies be damned, Norman had a super close relationship with his family, which on the night of June 12th would play a big role. My mom and my dad both on the way there, they're like, are you sure you want to go? Like, just come with us downtown. Like, oh no, I want to go out. I want to listen to music. I want to be in, you know, around my friends and around that good environment. I want to be able to like experience this before I focus completely on school. And they were relentless on, no, 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 just come with us, come with us. And when we finally get there, I'm like, I'm, I'll be fine. Like, it's going to be quick. If anything, I'll write you guys if I'm bored and you guys can come pick me up. You know, I tried to convince them to stay because at that point they had never gone to like a gay club with me. So I was like, how about you guys stay with me? And they're like, no, 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 no. We're going to go to the bar. Our friends are there. Da, da, da. And I'm like, all right, whatever. Which to this day, I'm so grateful that they didn't get out and weren't there for everything that happened. As Norman readied himself for his night out, 29-year-old Omar Mateen was posting his manifesto to social media websites. In it, Mateen claimed, the real Muslims of the world will never accept the filthy ways of the West. In reality, Mateen had a lot of secrets. A male friend of his from 2006, when the two were in police academy together, said that Mateen went to gay clubs repeatedly with him, and Mateen once expressed an interest in dating him. In fact, the night of the massacre wasn't Mateen's first time at Pulse. He'd actually been there over a dozen times. Sometimes he'd sit quietly in the corner and drink, other times he'd be drunk and loud, but every time his angry, threatening persona made him unapproachable. On the night of June 12th, however, Mateen would change Pulse forever. It was Latin night. The whole night was a normal Latin night, just, you know, good vibes, good music. Everyone was hanging out, talking, and it didn't feel like anything was off. After a fun but unremarkable night, Norman was ready to leave. As I'm paying the tab, that's when everything started. I'm literally handing the card over to the bartender, and that's when I heard the first two gunshots. Pulse is organized in a unique way. When you enter the club, there are two doors. To the right, you can enter a small room with a bar and a stage and two bathrooms. If you go left, you enter the dance floor and another bathroom. He took the right and went directly into the main room. And he got on the stage, and that's when he started shooting. As the shooting began, many stunned attendees had no idea what they were hearing. And there was music still playing, so not everyone was aware. And you start hearing the, the bigger guns, the assault rifles, and that's when kind of like I went into fight-or-flight mode. As Mateen entered the dance floor, many described a scene of panic and confusion caused by darkness and loud music. I was like right, right near the door when everyone ran in, so when I tried to turn and grab my friend to run towards where I, where I was hiding, I hid in the bathroom. 
To escape the chaos and brutality, Norman ran to the bathroom, but he wasn't alone. There was already like about 20, 30 people in one stall, just piled, piled on top of each other. We don't know what's actually happening yet. And that's when all the people ran into where I was. At 2.09, the club posts on its Facebook page, everyone get out of Pulse and keep running. Everyone's crying. There's people literally uh, urinating themselves from how scared they are in the stall. I could not believe that this was the moment I was in because the, the gunshots started getting closer and closer and closer to the bathroom stalls, which means he was getting closer to us. The bathroom stall is beginning to overflow. Uh, yes, it was fully packed, fully packed, like bodies on top of bodies hiding under each other. Like I want to say over 30 people in like a small, like handicapped stall. Yeah. I imagine I was one of the last ones to, to walk into the stall and I couldn't hide anywhere. So I was just directly in front of the door. Initially, I just closed my eyes and I was clenching my, my hand so hard that my nails actually dug into my hand and I was making my hands bleed from how scared I was. And I was like just looking at the floor of the bathroom and thinking like, I, I can, I'm going to die in, in the bathroom. I kind of made peace with what was going to happen. To that point, I wasn't very religious. But it just came natural and I just started asking God for, you know, I'm sorry for anything that I left undone and any sins that I committed and anything like that. Please let my family know that, you know, that, I, that I'm okay. I just kept thinking about them until the shooter initially was now in the bathroom. It's at this point that Mateen enters the bathroom, armed with a semi-automatic revolver and a 9mm Glock. As he's coming, in front of him, he had shot someone in the back. And they came into the stall and they fall in front of the stall. I'm literally in front of the stall door. This guy tells me, you know, please, please, I don't want to die and looks me in the eye and I remember this is one of the things that still sometimes gets to me is I remember I told him, you know, to be calm, that it's going to be okay, that I'm not going to let him die, that he's going to make it. Literally in that instant, the shooter comes in and shoots him in the back again. We had locked the stall door and kept it so that he couldn't open the stall. There was like, we were holding it. Unable to open the stall, Mateen begins to fire at the door. That's when the, the shrapnel from the assault rifle hits my foot. And at that time, I was wearing all white pants and white bands. And when the shrapnel hit my foot, the heat and all that, it was like getting shot, but by the metal pieces, not a direct bullet. And my foot started bleeding and the pain just shot up my body. And I remember I just opened my eyes and opened my mouth and all I was able to say was, I just got shot. The shooter then tries to reload his gun and 
I always say that that was God was trying his hardest to save us in that moment because the assault rifle jammed. He wasn't able to shoot us with the assault rifle. He was only able to shoot us with, I believe it was a nine millimeter semi-automatic weapon. And since he couldn't open the star, he was kind of, he, he got angry and like, we started, please, please don't do this. We haven't seen you. Like, you know, you can just turn around now, please, please. Like begging for our lives because we're in complete fear at that time. People are arguing with each other, telling each other to be quiet. Like just come, like emotions were everywhere. I'm in front of the stall. Like if he starts shooting, I'm going to die that point he tries to open the stall door we hold it i hear him reload the gun the nine and he shoots through the stall and that's when i got the first gunshot wound in my back on my left side because of the adrenaline and the heat of the moment i didn't feel that I turn, cause I'm in like a fetal position. I turn and I turn the opposite way. So now my right side is where my left side was and I'm giving my back to the stall door. He then puts his hand over the stall door. And I remember like it was yesterday, I looked up at the gun and I was able to look up at the barrel and that's when I said, this is it. And I closed my eyes and that's when he was able to shoot me directly. Like they say, you know, from the gun to me, there was nothing slowing down the bullet, nothing like that. And that's when he got me on my right side. I didn't remember this. The cops and the first responders told me this. I was out for 30 minutes. To me, it felt like I passed out and I woke back up like instantly. I'm bleeding out, you know, I'm getting, I'm getting weaker. I opened my eyes and I just remember from the adrenaline, I shot up, straight up, I stood up. My brain is kind of like assessing the things around me. There's already people who have passed, their eyes open. I had never seen that. Unfortunately, a lot of my friends that I went with that night passed. A few of them were in the bathroom with me and I remember moving them and being like, crying obviously and i'm telling them like wake up wake up come on we gotta go we gotta go we gotta go and obviously they've passed already from what just happened and they're not moving but my mind just can't wrap my head around that certainly a hard thing to understand my friend that i was running with she got shot 12 times and she couldn't move so she tells me if you can go go hurry go the stalls, there's bodies on the outside of the stall and the inside now, it's literally, we're stuck there. We cannot open the door. Survivors recall Mateen yelling that if the US stopped bombing his country, he would stop shooting. Likely referring to Afghanistan where his parents were from. Other survivors recall Mateen saying that he had explosives placed throughout the club and snipers on surrounding rooftops. As he moves room to room, killing survivors, he calls the police. Hey, Marston, I want this is Oscar Lawrence, being recorded. 
235 police enter the club. Because of the number of dead on the floor, police yell out, If you're alive, raise your hand. Back in the bathroom stall, Norman is trying desperately to survive. I looked at the floor, I looked at the bathroom sink, and I looked at the stall, already having four holes in my body because each bullet went in and out. I unfortunately had to stand on bodies to then get on the sink and then pull myself over the stall door, which was over six feet. And at that point, he's still shooting throughout the club. So I hide in the corner of the bathroom. What was able to snap me out of it was that my friend, the friend who had been shot, she asked me like, are you okay? Did you make it out? Can you walk? And she kind of was like, telling me like, go, go, go. Like, if you can walk, go, get out of here. I, I went to go stand up. Norman hears the sound of approaching police. Cause I heard the cops, the deep voices and the flashlights. I start yelling, victim, 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 victim. I'm hurt, I'm hurt. They don't know what's going on. So they yell, put your hands in the air. I tell them that I'm hurt. If I put my hands in the air, I'm gonna fall. So I don't do it immediately. And they also, end up firing around. They didn't hurt me, thank God, but they fired four rounds at me for from an AR-15. It whizzed by my face, like if I was in the Matrix, and it hit the wall next to me, the cement, and the cement hit my face, and I had little cuts on my face, and I remember that scared me so badly that I just dropped my hands in the air and I fell to the floor. One of the first responders saw me as he was opening the the emergency doors and pulls me out and hands me over to a cop. The cop then puts me behind a truck. He's asking me if I'm shot, if I'm hurt. And I don't really know because the adrenaline at that time, I did not feel bullet wounds. I didn't feel any pain. He's approached by a first responder. I remember she lifts my shirt up and I, I hear her like gasp. And she starts yelling, officer, 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 please come here, come here, come here. And she like kind of doesn't want to tell me what's wrong. So I, I grab my right hand and my middle finger and my index finger go about an inch into my body. And that's when I realized, oh my God, you got shot. At 2.45, Mateen calls News 13 of Orlando and says, 
I'm the shooter. It's me. I'm the shooter. He then says he's carrying out the shooting on behalf of ISIS and begins speaking rapidly in Arabic. Mateen also says that the shooting is triggered by a U.S.-led bomb strike in Iraq that killed Abu Wahib, an ISIS military commander, on May 6th. Mateen then tells police that he's planned to strap explosive vests, similar to those used in the 2015 Paris attack, to four hostages, strategically placing them in different corners of the building, and plans to detonate them in 15 minutes. During the siege, Mateen makes regular internet searches on the shooting, while police dispatch a tactical robot to communicate with hostages via a two-way audio feed. It's at this point that OPD officers decide to end negotiations and prepare to blow their way in. As this all unfolds, Norman is in the parking lot trying desperately to survive. I'm feeling cold. I keep saying that I want to lay my head down and I'm, I want to go to sleep. She then calls Norman's parents. She tells my mom, you know, it's it, I'm scared. He's, he's bleeding a lot and I, I don't know what's going to happen. And she passes the phone to me. And I remember telling my mom that, you know, I'm going to be OK. I, you know, that I, where I'm going, I'm not, you know, I'm not going to go through pain. Like this isn't happening where I'm going. You know, where I'm going, I'm going to be OK. Norman is near death as the adrenaline begins to wear off. Don't say goodbye in Spanish is no te despidas de mi. So she's saying like, you know, don't say goodbye. Don't, don't do that. You're not going anywhere. You're fine. We're on our way. Norman's rushed to the hospital. All I remember is them putting me on a stretcher, me screaming in agonizing pain and being put in the ambulance. And then I, I flatlined. In my mind, I went to a whole different place. I now say, I'm like, I don't know if it's the afterlife or what, but it was a very calm, very peaceful. It felt like I was on a cloud and I just remember being like, okay, so this is it. But this peace of mind doesn't last and he wakes up. And I wake up to, I'm vomiting. I'm, my whole body is kind of expelling everything, which is what happens when your body's getting ready for your passing. Terrifyingly, at this point, police hear that a shooter or shooters are in the hospital with them. So they put the hospital on lockdown and they move every survivor that's now in the hospital into another room and they're guarding us. And it was just, I honestly, in my head, I was like, this is some end of the world type situation. Like, it felt like I was in a movie. Once they figured out that there was no shooter in the hospital, they're able to then start taking out shrapnel from our bodies, things like that. And I was partially paralyzed from my waist down. The doctors come in, they ask me, you know, move your toes, stuff like that. They're not moving. And that's when that all started setting in, when they start using the, the paralyzed word. Norman's family arrives. And out of nowhere, I see them walk in and I finally felt safe kind of felt like the nightmare was over, even though I was just beginning. As Norman's health begins to improve, he catches a segment on a local news network about the shooting. Included is a list of those who were killed. My friend's name was Stanley Almodovar. His last name's with an A, so he's the first name they read. 
I completely broke down. I started screaming and crying and shaking. For a long time, Norman was reluctant to tell his parents what happened that night. I didn't feel comfortable, like, at first, even telling them my whole story. They would just catch it with if I did an interview or on days that I was really down that I would break down and tell them little bits here and there. Look at them. I just lost my whole, my, my friends. I, my life has now changed forever. I'm in a wheelchair. I'm not going to be able to walk. And my dad's motivation is kind of what made me want to stand up and force myself through the pain and start walking. Having survivor's guilt was a lot, a lot, a lot. When I see their names on my phone or a memory that they were in pops up from before Paul's, I, you know, I do get the same survivor's guilt feeling. And that feeling is, you know, you start questioning, like, why me? Why, why did I survive if this person had so much more going? It's a horrible feeling. Although Norman's health was improving, he lived a life of fear. But now I was just so afraid of the world. I was afraid of going out to a restaurant. I was always looking for the exits. I was constantly coming up with a strategic plan of how to get out of where we were and kind of ruining the moment. But that night still haunts Norman. Even though it's been four years, I still struggle with nightmares. Like I say all the time, I'm like, my boogeyman, when it comes to that day, it was a hand and a gun. Not that man that is on TV. And like I said, a lot of my friends passed, so I don't really go out and I don't really have a lot of friends. I have like maybe two girls that are very close to me. Because of the trauma he endured, Norman can no longer work. I don't actually work uh, due to everything that happened at Pulse. Physically, I, um, you know, my sciatic nerve was affected. You know, it causes pain, even sitting down. So it's, it's, a, it's a bit of a struggle. I attempted to go back to work, but it just, it was not. I, I went to culinary school, so I'm a chef. So that environment is very loud and very, you know, up in your face. And after Pulse, I, I can't really handle too much of that. Because even going grocery shopping causes a whole whirlwind of emotion. I still have a lot of my friends that passed away's phone numbers saved on my phone. And I've gotten new phones and new phones and new phones, and I make sure to keep them. Honestly, I'll text them sometimes and be like, it sucks that you're not here. I miss you. Norman's experience completely changed the way he sees himself and the world around him. Like the people you love at some point in time aren't gonna be there. Going through something like Pulse, I realized that your life can be taken away from you in the blink of an eye. But in some ways, the shooting really was a gift. It also helps you appreciate life so much more. We are where I'm at now, four years later. I try to be as positive and as peaceful as possible. I try to constantly see the bright side of things, even a situation like false. I always try to pull something out of it, a lesson, uh, an experience, a memory, something. The friends that I lost that are sitting 
up there now looking down on, on us wouldn't want me to be living my life like that. Making them proud of the way I'm living my life now and the way that I'm healing. When I hang up, I'm that person that says, I love you. Call me when you get home. And even if they don't call me, I know how long it takes you to get home. I'm going to call you. Listening to Highly Unlikely. I'm Jonathan Flannis. 